Hey there, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, I'm going to do the usual before we dive back in and give you a heads up that these episodes may be triggering or upsetting, and that's why listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators and their behaviour at real crime scenes. There are going to be some graphic details throughout this podcast series. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. Now, you'll recall that I left off in episode 9 talking about the trial, which began on the 5th of May 1981, just four months after PS's arrest. Mr Justice Boreham was a judge who presided over the trial in the number one court at the Old Bailey in London. As I mentioned previously, the prosecution team's lead counsel was Sir Michael Havers QC, the Attorney General, and he was supported by Harry Ognall QC. Defence counsel for PS were James Chadwin QC and Sidney Levine. The court heard first from Sir Michael Havers QC, who led with his opening speech on behalf of the prosecution. Now, I don't intend to go through chapter and verse of the opening speech, or indeed the trial, but I will highlight significant aspects of the case and what stands out to me from an analytical perspective. So firstly, as I mentioned before, Sir Michael Havers QC had just days to prepare the case, given his full U-turn from initially accepting the plea of diminished responsibility to now making the case of the exact opposite – that P.S. carried out a series of calculated, premeditated and sadistic murders and attacks on women. As soon as he stood to address the court, Sir Michael Havers QC made it plain that there were two narratives at play and the jury would ultimately have to decide which one they believed. The first narrative, and what the prosecution's case this time around was, that P.S. brutally and intentionally attacked and killed the women. Of course, this is the version that P.S. told the police when he confessed over the course of two days in January. The second narrative, he said, was the one that P.S. later gave to the psychiatrist, and that was that he heard voices and that it was God's mission for him to kill prostitutes. All four of the psychiatrists had diagnosed P.S. with paranoid schizophrenia, and that due to this abnormality of the mind, they opined that it had substantially impaired his mental responsibility for his acts, namely murder. So Michael Havers QC said that the jury would therefore have to decide whether they believed that PS had intentionally set about to deceive the doctors in order to avoid a murder conviction. He went further and said that he would prove that PS had duped the doctors and that the burden to prove diminished responsibility fell on the defence team. To that end, Sir Michael Havers QC highlighted that P.S. had lied when he was first arrested. He gave a false name. He lied about being with a prostitute. He said that Olivia Reavers was his girlfriend. And of course, he lied about the car and the false number plates. He said that he doubted whether the doctors had read P.S.'s confession statement or any of the material surrounding the case. He opined that the doctors much more likely relied upon what P.S. told them himself i.e. his own self-report. The lead counsel for the prosecution referenced two separate occasions that cast great doubt as to whether they relied on anything else other than what P.S. had told them himself. The first example that he gave is one that I've already talked about. Mr. Leach, the hospital prison officer who overheard P.S. tell Sonia on a visit that he did kill the women and that if he made himself out to be mad, he'd get 10 years in the loony bin. Again, his words. Now, Mr. Leach documented that as part of his job supervising and monitoring PS on January the 8th at Armley Prison Hospital in Leeds. The second occasion that he mentioned was on April the 14th. Another hospital prison officer, Anthony Fitzpatrick, was with PS and he insisted that he was normal. And he said that he was highly amused that the doctors considered him to be disturbed. Now, bear in mind that April the 14th was the same day it was announced that P.S.'s trial was transferred to London from Leeds. Now, a side note here. The fact that P.S. was in a secure mental health facility upset a lot of people, including the police. The detectives knew how dangerous he was, but here he was awaiting trial in a secure unit with his own private room with a shower and being treated as a patient rather than as a prisoner. This is a very different setup from prison conditions. 
So Michael Havers QC started off with these two examples, but there was, of course, much more evidence during the commission of the attacks themselves that would demonstrate he was indeed controlled and deliberate in the execution of the attacks. I'll go through and highlight the key points that he highlighted, albeit there's much more detail as he went through each of the 20 attacks on the women aged between 16 and 47 individually. So he started by reading out the 13 murder charges and began by outlining in detail the night that P.S. was arrested, and I want to quote exactly what he said. Some were prostitutes, but perhaps the saddest part of the case is that some were not. The last attacks were on totally respectable women. Yeah, he said that. I mean, it's just so outrageous. What a thing to say. And how it detracts yet again from the significant and salient aspects of the case. Now, to me, this just further highlights the victim blame, the misogyny and the double standards. And this from the most senior lawyer in the land. I can't even begin to imagine how that felt for the families listening to him. Why did he even say that? Many were appalled, and quite rightly so. In fact, the English Collective of Prostitutes demonstrated outside the court. Nina Lopez of the English Collective of Prostitutes helped to organise the protests outside the Old Bailey trial, and she recalled the fury that women felt with the Attorney General at the time. Nina Lopez said this, We were so absolutely outraged because that was why it took them so long to arrest him, she said. It was as though the police considered P.S. was doing them a favour by killing prostitutes and cleaning up the streets, she claimed. It was only when some so-called respectable women got killed that they started to pay attention. It really showed how when sex workers are not safe, no woman is safe. I have to say I agree with her. In fact, remember, Detective Superintendent Jim Hobson even said, he has made it clear that he hates prostitutes. Many people do. We as a police force will continue to arrest prostitutes, but the R word is now killing innocent girls. And unfortunately, Sir Michael Havers QC didn't stop there. There were other references throughout his opening speech to some of the women being of, in inverted commas, easy virtue, whereas others were of, in inverted commas, excellent reputation. Well, listen to what he said about Wilma McCann, the first murder victim, as he called her. She drank too much, was noisy and sexually promiscuous. She distributed her favours widely. Again, this is so outrageous. His language was loaded and set a tone that would hardly encourage any jury member to care for Wilma or the other women. So you have the lead prosecution counsel playing out the concept of a worthy versus unworthy victim, the very person who should be fighting for the victim and advocating on their behalf. Who else was going to be their voice? His own judgment and victim blame is leaking out here, and he did nothing to humanise or personalise the women in his speech. In fact, I'd argue he did the exact opposite. It's unacceptable then, and it's unacceptable now, and I don't accept it when people say, well, it was a cultural thing at the time. No, this was a man thing. How utterly disgraceful. Again, just to reiterate, none of the women deserve to be brutally murdered by P.S., and how dare he insinuate that some were almost asking for it. No one asked to be brutally murdered, no matter what they do. The blame and responsibility sits firmly and squarely with the perpetrator. These comments landed him back in the media for all the wrong reasons. Hardly a champion for the victims. Switching gears slightly, Sir Michael Havers QC did highlight to the jury that in P.S.'s confession statement, he did confess to 19 of the attacks, with the exception of Marguerite Walls, which is what I mentioned in episode 9. Well, an interesting fact that I'd like to share with you. When P.S. was asked about why he didn't confess to Marguerite Walls' murder, P.S. said this, I knew I was in deep water through my normal method of killing, and this would open new lines of inquiries on other murders that I'd not committed. Hmm. Now, this is both important and significant for a number of reasons. Firstly, remember when I talked about P.S. possibly using the rope in order to mislead police? Well, this in my opinion adds weight to my hypothesis. Secondly, this is a very important detail regarding looking for other potential offences that P.S. may have committed. It leads me to believe there are certainly other offences that were not put to him, 
and that he may well have used other MOs. And I'm going to talk about this in a future episode as I've been analysing other potential offences that I want to share with you and see what you think. Thirdly, this points to a deliberate, cool-headed, meticulous and controlled killer, not one who is not in control of all his faculties. And fourthly, it indicates that he will only cough, as we call it in the UK, or confess to the offences that he's committed if he believes he's backed into a corner. This is also demonstrated and observed by his behaviour upon arrest, where he chanced his arm and lied repeatedly to begin with. But when the blood work came back, when he knew that Detective Sergeant O'Boyle had spoken with Sonia about his movements, and when he knew that they had the weapons, it was then, and only then, that he said he knew, in inverted commas, the game was up, and then he confessed. But noticeably, he did not confess to any other offences that were not in the media. He was careful and deliberate in his confession, hardly a man who was exhibiting an abnormality of the mind, an abnormality that officers who spent days with him saw no evidence of, twinned with the fact that P.S. spoke nothing about hearing voices throughout that time. So back to the prosecution's opening speech. So Michael Haver's QC said about motive that sexual intercourse did not appear to have played a part in any of P.S.'s conduct regarding his victims. He explained that other than the one exception of Helen Richter, P.S. had not sought out or had sexual relations with any of his victims. Now, I have to interject here, as we know this simply not to be true, and the language, sexual relations. We're not talking about sexual relations here. We're talking about sexual assault and we're talking about rape. And I've also highlighted how he pulled up the victim's tops and exposed the victim's breasts and that he masturbated at a number of the scenes, including Wilma McCann's and Marcella Claxton's, as he was sexually aroused from the violence and the brutality. And we also know that he wore a V-neck jumper on his legs so he could expose his penis easily. Now, Sir Michael Haver's QC can be forgiven for not knowing about the rape kill kit that P.S. wore, that V-neck jumper he was wearing when he was searched, But there are many other indicators, including in P.S.'s own confession, that these power and control crimes were sexually motivated. For example, when he talked about Emily Jackson, P.S. said this, I pulled her bra up and pulled her pants down. It gave me some sort of sexual revenge on her, as on reflection, it had done with Wilma McCann. I stabbed her frenziedly, without thought, all over the body. I was seething with hate for her. I pushed a piece of wood against her vagina to show how disgusting she was. Now, all three of these acts by P.S. highlight that the attack was sexually motivated. Furthermore, when Sir Michael Havers QC spoke about Helen Richter and the fact that she was raped by P.S., he read aloud from P.S.'s confession. Now, I don't like to bring P.S.'s voice in too much. I don't want his narrative being the point of focus, but I think there are some important segments where I need to read out what he said so that I can evidence what I mean. Now, talking about Helen Richter, P.S. told the police this. She undid my trousers and seemed prepared to start sexual intercourse right away in front of the car. It was very awkward for me to find a way to get her out of the car. For five minutes, I was trying to decide which method to use to kill her. She was beginning to arouse me sexually. I got out of the car with the excuse that I needed to urinate and managed to persuade her to get out of the car so that we could have sex in the back. As she was getting in, I realized that this was my chance, but the hammer caught on the edge of the car door frame and only gave her a light tap. She said, there's no need for that. You don't even have to pay. I expected her to immediately shout for help. She was obviously scared and said, what was that? I said, just a small sample of one of these and hit her hard on the head. She just crumbled, making a loud moaning noise. I realised what I had done was in full view of two taxi drivers who had appeared and were talking nearby. I dragged her by the hair to the end of the woodyard. She stopped moaning, but was not dead. Her eyes were open and she held up her hands to ward off the blows. I jumped on top of her and covered her mouth with my hand. It seemed like an eternity and she was still struggling. I told her that if she kept quiet, she would be all right. As she had got me aroused a moment previous, I had no alternative but to go ahead with the act of sex as the only means of keeping her quiet. It didn't take long. She kept staring at me. She just lay there limp and didn't put much into it. 
Now, just to break down and analyse this section, because it's really important. Firstly, notice how P.S. is trying to take the passive role. According to him, it was all initiated by Helen. Well, no, it wasn't. This was initiated by him approaching her. Let's just make that clear first of all. Secondly, when he thought about which weapon he would use to kill her, it was then that he was sexually aroused. He then hit her twice on the head and she collapsed. He then purposefully dragged her to a second location and he knew that she was still conscious and was trying to defend herself to ward off blows. So he was still attacking her by his own admission. And then he said that while she was struggling, that she got him aroused a moment previous and so he had no choice but to have, in inverted commas, sex with her to keep her quiet. Well, this is instructive and outrageous in equal measure. Let me break down why. Firstly, Helen did not arouse him. He was aroused by the violence, the thought of violence, and then the violence itself. And this is a very obvious attempt to absolve himself of any responsibility. Now, let me be plain. Helen was fighting for her life after he suddenly attacked her. She was bloodied and in distress, and he was turned on. Secondly, he says that he had no choice. How utterly outrageous and ridiculous. Of course he had a choice. He had the choice not to attack her, not to continue to attack her, and then not to rape and kill her. That was all his choice. There were plenty of other options available to him, and he chose not to take them. He chose violence, and he chose to put his penis inside her vagina at the very point she was dying. He raped her. This was not sex. It was rape as she was taking her last breaths on this earth. Just think about that. Thirdly, how ludicrous to suggest that he would keep her quiet by raping her. And fourthly, he said that she just stared at him and didn't put much into it. By God, this is so repugnant and reprehensible, and he has no qualms about saying any of this out loud. Helen was lying there dying a slow and painful death from the injuries that he had inflicted and he expects her to put some effort in. This shows a complete callous disregard for her and her life and how utterly narcissistic and sadistic he was. In his mind, how dare she be almost dying and not enjoying her own rape and death. So we know from the attack on Helen and by his own admission that he was aroused by raping a bleeding, incapacitated, dying woman. Now this is instructive of necrophilia. This is exactly what P.S. is about, not mission kill. This was his secret that he tried to protect at all costs. This was why he attacked the women and dragged them to a secondary location. The only reason someone would go to the effort of moving a body to a second location is because of what you're going to do to them. And so it's confounding to me that the prosecution team did not make any attempt to expose this. What's clear to me is that they didn't understand the sexual motivation or the power and control dynamics of P.S.'s offending behaviour. And perhaps if they had known what he'd been wearing when he was arrested, perhaps then they would have been in no doubt and able to paint the picture far more accurately for the jury. The attack, the rape and the murder of Helen Richter and what P.S. said about it was also a real window into P.S.'s mindset and I'll talk about the traits of psychopathy in an episode on P.S. But just to be absolutely clear, these are all very obvious traits of psychopathy and a sadistic killer, just in case anyone is in any doubt. It's as clear as day to me that he hated women. And let me speak plainly. He sought to defile and dehumanise women in every possible way. He exposed their breasts. He masturbated over some of the women whilst they lay bloodied and dying on the ground. He bit Josephine Whitaker on the left breast and repeatedly inserted a screwdriver into her vagina, an act unnecessary if his true motive was to kill. Marguerite Walls had fingernail scratches at the entrance of her vagina, and we mustn't forget that seven of the attacks were incomplete and so we don't know what he would have done to each woman had he been able to continue as he intended. And in the other cases, evidential opportunities were lost. And so I find it utterly confounding that a sexual motive was not highlighted by the prosecution team or the fact that he hated women. In fact, misogyny was never even brought up 
nor was it posited, which shows how misunderstood this case was at trial. Yet it can't be more obvious to me. This was a huge error, in my opinion, which had grave consequence. P.S. and his defence counsel capitalised on it, and it allowed for the whole mission-kill, voices-from-God narrative to come into play, which was all very convenient for him, and perhaps in some quarters it garnered sympathy, given the gender-bias, victim-blame, misogyny and sexism that was at play throughout the investigation, as well as what was reported in the media and at trial. And I'll be returning to this too. So Michael Havers QC also brought up that on interview, P.S. was asked whether the Anna Rajolsky offence was the first... And he replied yes, and that he did intend to kill her, but he was disturbed. This is perplexing, as we know this not to be his first offence. P.S. said on interview on January the 5th, All this really started when I was done out of £10 by a prostitute in Bradford. She went off to get it changed and never came back. This poisoned my mind about prostitutes. And so even in his police interview, he spoke about the 1969 attack, but interestingly, there was no mention of mission kill, voices from God, or hallucinations. But P.S. did provide a further somewhat interesting context to the 1969 attack, which was him seeking out what he said was his first prostitute in order to, in inverted commas, level the score with Sonia before they were married. This was his version of events. I was working at the waterboard and I heard that Sonia was seeing an Italian ice cream man who would pick her up from college and take her out at night. By going with a prostitute, I thought that it would level the score. I thought I would have intercourse with the prostitute, but changed my mind when it got to the stage where we had got to do it. Now, I believe that this is the origin story. This was the lady who cheated him out of the £10, and he saw her later and he wanted to make her pay for humiliating him. This is what I call humiliated fury. And so once again, we hear women being blamed for his behaviour. Firstly, Sonia for dating the Italian ice cream man, and then the prostitute for keeping an extra five pounds. You see, it's also convenient to pass off the responsibility onto women. Men and general society have been doing it since time began. It was when she did X that he did Y. Well, no, the simple truth here is that he wanted revenge. He felt rejected and humiliated, and he wanted to get back at her. And when his plan failed, it was a double humiliated fury. He'd make all women pay. Far easier to project, transfer, and deflect, and for women to be at fault than for him to take responsibility for his fragile ego, humiliated fury, and entitled trauma. A very dangerous combination. P.S. even said later that he had seen the prostitute who had cheated him out of £10, and I quote, he said, She refused to give it back to me and I felt humiliated, outraged and embarrassed. I was full of hatred. Yes, I can believe this. Of course, in his mindset, she had to pay. How dare she? How dare all women? Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. 
I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. We saw that there was way, way more written about the psychology of this man, who he could be, including after he'd been caught and when he was on trial. Column after column after feature after expose in newspapers, on television, on radio, told us that this was a fascinating case study. How could this ordinary looking man who held down a job and had a wife and lived in a community where neighbors said he was nothing extraordinary, how could he do such extraordinary things? And as feminists, of course, we know that men commit heinous acts of violence against women who are perfectly ordinary, it's part of uh, of male pattern behaviour under patriarchy. So he was an extreme example. So by this process of looking at the extraordinary behaviour of the perpetrator and desperately trying to make sense of him rather than seeing him as a violent man who hates women, the victims become irrelevant and invisibilised. Now, I want to tell you about Trevor Birdsall, P.S.'s good friend since 1966. You heard Julie Bindle mention him on episode eight, and I said that I would circle back to him. Well, Sir Michael Havers QC told the court that Trevor Birdsall was in the car when P.S. jumped out and attacked the prostitute in 1969. He got back in the car and he told Trevor Birdsall that he had, and I quote, hit a woman and then proceeded to throw the stone out of the window. Well, he was also in the pub with P.S. the night Olive Smelt was attacked. In fact, they were in the same pub as Olive Smelt in Halifax that very night. When P.S. was interviewed about Olive Smelt's attack, he said this, I saw this woman in a pub and she annoyed me, probably in some minor way. I took her to be a prostitute. I hit her on the head and scratched her buttocks with a piece of a hacksaw blade or maybe a knife. My intention was to kill her, but I was disturbed by a car coming down the road. Again, I can believe this. Often it's some trivial transgression, a look, or something that's said that sparks a man off like P.S. I've seen it so many times before, particularly with deep-seated misogyny. Who does she think she is type attitude? I'll show her. In fact, Trevor Birdsall said P.S. had seen some women in the pub and turned around and said, I bet they're all on the game. Then when they were in the car later, P.S. jumped out, and when he came back, he said he tried to chat up some bird, and it hadn't worked. Again, his words, not mine. Some bird. Not even casual sexism and objectification. It's just blatant. The next day, Trevor Birdsall read in the paper about the attack on Olive Smelt, and he did and said nothing. Trevor Birdsall also knew that P.S. was later questioned about the £5 note in the Jean Jordan inquiry, and still he did and said nothing. In fact, it wasn't until November 1980 that he wrote an anonymous letter to police and then went to see them himself, but by then many women had been murdered and many more attacked. You know, that's the bystander effect Julie and I talked about, the one that allows killers like P.S. to get away with it, the bro code that protects men like P.S., the ecosystem that supports them and reinforces what they're doing is okay. 
You'll hear more about Trevor Birdsall, as he was one of the first witnesses the prosecution called to give evidence. So Michael Haver's QC closed the first day by using PS's words on interview when he was talking about the attack on Theresa Sykes. He said, I attacked her because she was the first person I saw. So Michael Haver's QC said, Remember his words before. I hate prostitutes. I cannot stand them. He was making the point plain that this was not about prostitutes at all, and this was about women being targeted and attacked. And just to finish up my thought about what P.S. said regarding Teresa Sykes, what he most likely meant was that she was the first woman he saw. This wasn't about him going out and attacking men and women indiscriminately. This was all about attacking women, solely women. Again, this was a missed opportunity for Sir Michael Havers QC to mention P.S.'s hatred of women and misogyny, the very motive for his crimes. You know, even present day, I doubt this would be mentioned, and it's exactly why Stella Creasy MP, a Member of Parliament for Walthamstow in London, and many others, including myself, are calling for misogyny to become a hate crime. On day two of the trial, Jacqueline Hill's murder was outlined in detail, along with the fact that she was, and I quote, a respectable woman who attended probation meetings and was involved in social work. Oh, you see, I told you this was a recurrent theme, and it only served to undermine their case and spark outrage amongst women. Sir Michael Havers QC provided the jury with the psychiatrist Dr Hugo Milne's 35-page report. This was a report that he had compiled after 11 interviews with PS whilst he was in Armory Jail, and he also interviewed Sonia. Now, at this point, Judge Borum questioned whether it was the appropriate time to deal with the report, as it formed the backbone of the defence's case, but both sides agreed that this was the most appropriate time to introduce it. Again, this was very interesting timing for it to be introduced, but I'm guessing that Sir Michael Havers QC knew this report particularly well, given that he had initially agreed with its findings. And I'm still reeling from that, by the way. I just can't get my head around the Crown Prosecution Service of how they decided and why they decided to initially accept his plea of diminished responsibility without a challenge. But that's what happened. So here are the significant points that I want to highlight presented by Sir Michael Havers QC. Firstly, Dr Milne's report stated that there was no psychiatric history involving PS or his five brothers and sisters. Secondly, the report said, and I quote, The mother became involved with a policeman, and as a result the happy marriage was destroyed, and the father became unfaithful with the woman with whom he's now living. Side note here, that happy marriage and the fact that it was destroyed by his mother appears to be far from the truth from what I have discovered, and I'll get into that in another episode. But see how women are blamed for everything and the Mel narrative is always happy to include it without question. Thirdly, Dr Milne went to great length to document Sonia's psychiatric history and its impact on PS, how tricky she was and how difficult she was, and he also recorded that their sex life was, in inverted commas, extremely satisfactory, which led him to conclude this. I found that there was no suggestion that the accused is in any way sexually deviant or that his wife is sexually deviant. In fact, Dr Milne said of P.S., he completely denies that he was using the assaults to help him in the sexual situation. There is no suggestion that he is a sadistic sexual deviant. I am convinced that the killings were not sexual in any way and the stabbings, which were a feature of the assaults, had no sexual component. I have had the opportunity of spending many hours with the accused and there is little doubt that he is friendly and open in his manner and at no time did he withhold information. Oh, well, that's all okay and dandy then. I mean, if he was friendly, that's the most important thing, right, Dr Milne? I have to say that this is staggering to me. He found him friendly. Unbelievable. What does that have to do with his clinical assessment? And yes... I would suspect that he would be friendly to the man who has great influence and power over what happens next to him. Did Dr. Milne ever consider that this might be a manipulation tactic? And to say at no time did he withhold information. Now, just to point out a blinding glimpse of the obvious, how would he know? 
I mean, did Dr. Milne have access to the autopsy reports? Did he review the crime reports? Did he actively seek out all alternative sources of information regarding the offences and then cross-compare it with PS's account? I believe the answers are no, because if he did, he would have found it a very different version of events, a version called the truth. Did Dr. Milne ever compare what he actually did to the women with this revisionist version where PS is the sole editor and orator of the new narrative? Did he interview any of PS's family members to ascertain whether there are any signs or symptoms of deteriorating mental health prior to the murders and the attacks? Or how about work colleagues? Or what about statements from the police officers who spent days interviewing him? I mean, again, one man's account, because he's a man, being given credence over everything else, including at least 13 dead women and seven others who narrowly survived, even when P.S. confessed, that just tells me everything. It should have been worth Dr. Milne's time to proactively seek out other information to confirm or refute P.S.'s account at the very least. I mean, we are talking about a prolific serial killer who harmed and killed so many women. You would have thought he'd make the effort, right? From what I can tell, he didn't do his due diligence and was totally taken in by P.S. and relied on his narrative with grave consequence. In my opinion... This is extremely unprofessional and arrogant, not to mention deeply concerning and dangerous. I just have to call it as I see it, and I know I'm not sugarcoating it. But these are very serious matters at hand, and to not give it the care and attention it deserved is unconscionable. On Thursday, the 7th of May, 1981, Trevor Birdsall, P.S.'s friend, gave evidence. Now, early on, it was established that he had received money from the Sunday People newspaper. They'd already paid him £1,000 and were paying for his hotel and weekly expenses in London. The judge told him that he must not discuss his evidence with anyone, including a newspaper. Now, this is astounding and repugnant that a significant witness in a major trial, and indeed one who could have stopped P.S. earlier was being paid. And in fact, Jacqueline Hill's mother mounted a campaign as she was so angry people were making money out of her daughter's death. And quite right too, I can completely understand where she's coming from. This case created a media feeding frenzy with various outlets tying people up, key witnesses, getting deals with them, which got in the way of the police investigation and was problematic for the trial. And you heard Julie Bindle reference this in episode eight. Trevor Birdsall and another friend, Ronald Barker, both gave evidence about P.S. talking about prostitutes, making lewd remarks, how quiet he was, and that after they'd been drinking at the pub, he always wanted to drive around the red light districts during the early hours. Olivia Rivas also gave evidence. You'll recall she was in the car with P.S. in Sheffield when he was arrested. She told the court that P.S. had wanted to talk about problems with his wife, which she took to mean sexual problems. She said that they talked about having sex, and she touched his penis, but throughout the whole time she was with P.S., he never achieved any sort of erection. Now this again is instructive to me, and it leads me to believe that he would most likely only be aroused through violence, again lending more weight to the sexual motive, the power and control, the sexual motivation, and yet again this was another missed opportunity by the prosecution team. Mr. Harry Ognall QC for the prosecution also read the statement made by Sergeant Bob Ring, who, along with probationary constable Robert Hydes, had arrested P.S. And on Friday, the 8th of May, 1981, Detective Inspector John Boyle gave evidence. Now, you'll recall that P.S. confessed to him that he was the killer. Well, one other significant detail which came to light and which was heard at court was that P.S. said the following... I would have killed that girl in Sheffield if I hadn't been caught. So I think we can say with certainty that Olivia Reavers was a near miss to murder. And of course, just to underline the fact, the court never knew about the V-neck sweater P.S. was wearing on his legs. Now this sort of nuanced detail is vital to my work, but it should also be vital for the jury to know about. But the police officers didn't want to highlight this because it was a breach of process, and so they left it out. Damning, damning evidence. 
There was irrefutable, in my opinion, which should have been included. And the psychiatrist should have known about it too, because it talks to motivation and intent. Detective Sergeant Des O'Boyle also gave evidence, as did Detective Sergeant Peter Smith. And one thing all the police officers testified to was the fact that throughout the interviews, P.S. remained calm, polite, and he never became angry. This is again in stark contrast to a man who is saying that he hears voices and has an abnormality of the mind, and it's a point worth highlighting in and of itself. Again, another blinding glimpse of the obvious, P.S. was very controlled and controlling and deliberate throughout his confession. The next prosecution witness was John Leach, the hospital prison officer at Armory Jail. He explained P.S.'s day-to-day, though he had an ensuite of sorts, was supervised 24 hours a day, and was escorted on each outing from the ward. A logbook was kept by hospital prison officers, and they noted anything in it that they thought was relevant. John Leach read from his notes that P.S. said he had killed the women, and that if he could prove that he was mad, he'd get less than 10 years. Now, interestingly, he also read his notes from after the visit with Sonia where he said this, and he documented that P.S. was staring off into space, sitting with a book, not really reading it, but staring through it, and that he kept losing track of time, that he said it was his purpose to do what he did, and that he used to hear voices, and when he was a grave digger, he'd hear voices from the tombs. He finished up by telling the court that P.S. fluctuated from being very talkative to very quiet. Sounds like quite the performance to me. The next witness was Anthony Fitzpatrick, another prison officer from Armley Jail who was supervising P.S. He recorded a conversation where P.S. told him he wasn't going to prison and that he had, in fact, got a place reserved for him at Park Lane Special Hospital. P.S. told him an agreement had been reached between the prosecution and defence and that his plea of diminished responsibility had been accepted. He said he'd also been told by his psychiatrist that he would do no more than 10 years to satisfy the public. Anthony Fitzpatrick said that he was cocky, arrogantly confident that this was a done deal. Now, I can't even begin to tell you how angry this makes me. You feel it too, right? I know you do. This deal being struck behind closed doors between these powerful men at the expense of all the women P.S. murdered and brutalised without any discussion with the families or surviving victims. Oh, my goodness, it's just so maddening. But what I will say is that the one saving grace was Judge Borum, who put a stop to this deal, and thank goodness that he did. I'll say it again because it could have turned out very differently if it weren't for Judge Borum. And good Lord... It really shows you the value and worth of a woman's life, doesn't it? Now, the last witness for the prosecution was Frederick Edwards, another hospital prison officer who gave evidence about April the 14th when P.S. told him his trial had been moved from Leeds Crown Court to the Old Bailey, which he said he was very pleased about. P.S. also told him that he was amazed that the doctors considered him disturbed, and he said, while smiling broadly and leaning back in his chair... I'm as normal as everyone else. Well, that's what the jury would have to determine, and with that, the prosecution concluded their case. Now, strategically speaking, that was a good point to end on. It was a Friday, and they let P.S.'s words hang heavy on the jury across the weekend. On Monday, May the 11th, 1981, Defence Counsel James Chadwin, QC, called Detective Inspector Boyle as their first witness. They wanted him to talk about P.S.'s background, that he was, in inverted commas, a reserved man with few hobbies or interests. James Chadwin QC made the point that P.S. had no history of violence and that there had been no domestic abuse call-outs to his address. Detective Inspector Boyle agreed. He only mentioned the going equipped for theft offence and several driving offences. Now, this is very bizarre given the 1969 attack on the unnamed prostitute. You can now probably understand how false forensic profiles can be created. I've said much about this already, but when someone says he has no history of violence, that may well not be the case, just like in this case. Now, this obviously counted in P.S.'s favour, as they didn't hear the detail of the 1969 attack, or that he had a hammer for the so-called going equipped for theft offence. After Detective Inspector Boyle gave evidence, James Chadwin QC 
called PS as his next witness. Now, rather interestingly, all these gaps that I've just mentioned were filled in by the questions James Chadwin QC asked of PS. It was PS who admitted to hitting a prostitute over the head in 1969 and to carrying a hammer three weeks later, and he even declared that it was with the intention to attack a woman. Well, it's quite fascinating that he chose to say that here, but what a great pity he didn't disclose that when he was arrested at the time. Now, this again gives an indication of how strategic PS actually was. And then PS went into free flow about the voices he heard whilst he was working at the cemetery and getting messages from the grave, Jesus speaking to him, and then someone in Polish, and that he felt he'd been chosen by God. Now, what came next was a whole load of what I call poor me syndrome from PS. He went on about how he had had a row with Sonia when he found out she was dating another man, and that he was depressed, and that he'd got demoted from his job, and that he'd fallen off his motorbike and hit his head. He said he was so depressed that it led to his first encounter with a prostitute, and James Chadwin QC asked him if that argument led to him seeing a prostitute, and he said yes. Now, can you see how quickly this is transferred and projected onto Sonia? You see, in this script, because she was seeing another man, P.S. had no choice but to see a prostitute. It's laughable, really, if it wasn't so serious, but sadly, this goes on present day with murder cases, and I see it in the media, and I see it in my own casework. It's when she did X that he did Y. You see, I've said it before and I'll say it again, women are blamed for literally everything, including male violence. And the so-called mission-to-kill prostitutes narrative continued throughout his testimony. P.S. talked about getting back together with Sonia and living in London for a year with her while she did her teacher training course in Deptford in 1970. And now I'm sharing this point as that's great intelligence to know, which informs my timeline of P.S., so I know to search for other offences in London across that time period. P.S. talked about Sonia being ill from early 1972 and that he took a night job from September 1969 to 1975 to stop him from doing anything to prostitutes. His words. When asked if he heard voices in 1975, P.S. said yes, just before he attacked Anna Rajolsky. Well, this all seems rather convenient, doesn't it? You see, it's much more likely this narrative was crafted to fit with the offences the police had linked and the prosecution's case. You see, the prosecution have to hand over all their case material to defence counsel prior to trial, allowing them, along with the defendant, the opportunity to craft their narrative. Remember, the burden always lies on the prosecution to prove their case beyond reasonable doubt, and not the defence. And now you can probably understand also why it's so important to thoroughly prepare a case properly before trial. Other offences should have been examined, in my opinion. It's highly unlikely that between 1969 and 1975 that this was a true hiatus, and I've already been looking at other potentially linked offences, as I said before. P.S.'s testimony ran over two days in which he continued to re-emphasise that God made him do this and he thought all the women were prostitutes. And he also said he was surprised that the police didn't catch him. Of that, he said this. It was a miracle that they didn't apprehend me earlier. They had the facts. They knew it was me. They had the facts for a long time. Yes, I concur. It was a miracle, quite frankly, or more like a nightmare. And I'll get into that in another episode. Now, the cross-examination of P.S. by Sir Michael Havers QC was intense and compelling, and I have to say, he did a good job of pulling apart the God Mission Kill narrative and highlighting elements of control and careful planning throughout the course of P.S.'s offending, leading P.S. in the end to admit that if he were to be let out, he would kill again. Now, that was a pretty damning statement for the jury to hear. Next up was Dr. Hugo Milne, the first medical expert to give evidence for the defence. But I'll tell you about some of the quite unbelievable moments from his testimony next week. Again, I know that this has been a lot to digest, and being candid, there's a lot more that I could say, and I'm really trying to distill it down to the main points that I find fascinating and instructive that will also help me, and of course you, when we consider other potential offences that PS may have committed. The more information, including behavioural and psychological insights that we have about him, 
and also information regarding his timeline, the better. And so I'm going to leave it there for now. So hit me up on social media, Twitter at The Crime Analyst or IG at Crime Analyst, and let me know what resonated with you about this episode. You know I like to hear from you and hear your analytical thoughts, ideas and response to the facts of the case and to my analysis and my thoughts that I've discussed. So I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell for next week for episode 11 of The Forgotten Victims. Until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. <laughs>